We continue our series today in the Gospel of John in a series called The Garden in Reverse, and we are in John chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. This is the word of the Lord. When soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that you are here, that the presence of your spirit is with us because of the work of your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are so good to us and you are so kind. And I ask, Lord, that you would Tune our hearts to your goodness and your beauty and your truth today and that you would turn our attention to you. You would shape us. You would change us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Father, would you help, um, would you help these words of mine to be helpful to my brothers and sisters? We love you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. He showed up wearing a black garbage bag. It was Halloween. I was in fifth grade, and I'll never forget, he showed up wearing a a black garbage bag. Now, something you should know about Billy is that Billy was always a bit awkward. He wore clothes that were awkward. Jeans that were were too big that he had to cinch really tight. Jeans that were way too long that he had to cuff multiple times before it was cool to do so. He he told racist jokes. He told jokes that we didn't find funny uh, because we didn't understand them. He told jokes about boys and girls and we didn't know what he was talking about. Often he was timid, but other times he'd punch you in the eye. And then he would be carted off to Mr. Ross, our school principal. He wanted to be included desperately, but he was incredibly skilled at pushing people away. He was the butt of our playground, jokes, and so you can imagine him wearing a garbage bag on costume day. Well, it was easy fodder for white trash jokes, and we let him have it. That year for Billy must have been hellish. And I remember later finding out where Billy lived. He, he lived in a rundown house on the edge of town, and he had an abusive father who left his mark and marks on Billy. 
And I remember feeling the weight of, of shame often regarding this situation. A young boy abused, aching for love, wanting badly to fit in, to be accepted, wore a garbage bag to school because it's all he had and he knew other people would be wearing something and he wanted to be a part of the circle. And we shamed him publicly. Now at the time I was ignorant of Billy's difficult childhood, but I was not innocent when it came to making it more difficult. And years later, shame filled me with every pass by that house, that dilapidated house on Hover, which I drove by, drove by all the time. Now, we all know this. We all know the heavy, joy-stealing weight. No one's immune from shame. You know what I'm talking about. The young child knows it when their patient, weary parent stands there with hands on the hip and gives them the, I can't believe you look. Or the highly communicative, exasperated sigh that says, you are an irritant to me. They know it. The woman or man who hears the words, it's over, I don't love you anymore. They know it. The hopeful high school graduate who has just received her fifth letter of rejection from the last university she applied for. And they know it, the popular one, who's state champ, who's valedictorian, who can't remember ever once getting an approving glance from mom or dad. And they know it, the one who looked at something perverse, who now struggles to make eye contact with you when you ask them how their week was. And they know it. The one who's sitting in their car for an hour in the driveway trying to find the words to tell their spouse that they no longer have a job and they couldn't quite cut it. We're all, uh, we are all well acquainted with shame. And that's why it's so crucial that we talk about it today as we look at the crucifixion account of Jesus in the book of John. It's very common, and it's right to do so, to focus on the physical brutality, the extreme bodily suffering of, of Jesus. That's, that's good, and that's, that's right to do, but we would miss much of what Jesus accomplishes on the cross if we don't address the topic of shame. And John, in his wisdom, focuses our attention on shame through the details about clothing. He wants us to see the truth about the king's clothes. Now, speaking anthropologically, in general, in the Western world, we have a framework by which we look at things. Um, and you could say one of these frameworks, the key framework is, is innocence guilt. It's an innocence guilt framework. But that's not how it is in cultures all across the world. Other cultures focus primarily on honor, shame. They have an honor and shame framework by which they understand things. And then there's animistic-based cultures that operate by a fear-power construct. And every society has these all interwoven to some degree or another. They're not all just separated. But it, it, it seems our focus here. In the West, because of the Enlightenment and Greek thought, in the Western world, there is an innocence-guilt 
culture rather than an honor, shame, or power, fear understanding of things. And the reality is, when we approach the gospel of Jesus, when we approach the good news of the cross, we often do it through the lens of innocence and guilt. Of innocence and guilt. And that's good and that's right, but it's more robust than that. It needs to be more dimensional. So today in our hard-to-look-at passage, shame is exposed. And Jesus in his love reverses shame by bearing shame. The shame game is on brutal display if we have the eyes to see it. So where are we in the story? Let's get our bearings. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own. Arrested, unjustly judged by the Sanhedrin, spent time bound in a dungeon, put on trial before the Roman authorities. He has been beat up and been sentenced by the crowd to be crucified. It's been an exhausting and dark night that has smelled of blood, sweat, and the hot breath of power brokers and soldiers. And now, four Roman soldiers are playing a game with the clothes of the king. Chapter 19, verse 23 and on says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it and see whose it shall be. Now, it's just another day for the life of one of these soldiers who have a contempt for these backwards, Yahweh-obsessed Jews. It's just another day with another prisoner that they can bat around like a cat does with a wounded mouse. And this ragged-looking man, well, he's purported to be the king of the Jews. And so this is great fodder for this this hard-nosed group of soldiers looking to make some sport of another dead man walking so that they can spice up their day a bit. So they're going to play this up, and they're going to beat him down. So they put on a mock coronation ceremony. They wrap him with a purple or scarlet royal robe. They twist thorny branches into a mock crown, a cruel version of the golden one that Caesar is wearing as he sits on the throne in Rome. And then the shaming just continues. Now is a humiliation parade. Jesus is paraded through the streets as a criminal. He's marched up Skull Hill. He's nailed to a cross between two criminals outside the walls of the city where the dirty, the unwanted, and the unaccepted were thrown away like trash. Golgotha was outside the city at the point. Outside the city is where the trash went. Here was a man seen to be nothing more than trash. Now, this death squad of four Roman centurions, a quaternion, they nail Jesus to the cross. And while Jesus bleeds and struggles to breathe, these soldiers play games with the king's clothes. It was customary for the soldiers on the clock to lay claim to the clothes and the the items and articles of those that they crucified. And they would take those, they would sell them, they would barter them, do what they want with them. Now, as they roll dice to divvy up the clothes of this dying man, they have no idea that the central event, not only in world history, but in cosmic history, is literally hanging 
over their heads. And we should read between the lines here. What is the visual? When you stop to think about the picture that's painted, what is the actual visual that's going on here? Jesus' outer garment and his inner garment, they are in the hands of the centurions. So what does this mean for Jesus? It means he's nailed to the cross naked. He is vulnerability in the flesh. He is vulnerability to the extreme. Jesus knows what it's like to be stripped naked and abused. And I think some of us today just need to hear that and let the Spirit minister to us with that. Jesus knows what it is like to be stripped naked and abused. Now, a brief note on the common clothing of the day. Men's clothing was basically made of of two pieces, an inner piece of clothing that was called the tunic, that's the hamatia, and then there, it was like a, a, long, a long shirt that a belt would then go around. And then there was the outer garment, which is the, the, the cloak, the, the, the kaiton there. Um, and then there was the belt, the sandals, and the head covering for, for prayer. So basically, though, two pieces of main clothing, and then there was these, these other three. And that, that gives you five pieces, most likely the five pieces that are dealt with here in our text. Jesus' clothes are divided up between these four soldiers. But then there's the inner tunic, and now they, they have a problem because it's not easily divided. It can't be split up. It's all of one weave. It's too nice to ruin. They won't get money for it. They can't use it if they rip it into pieces. So they settle the matter, as any good soldier would do, when they're bored with the game of dice. Naked, exposed for all to see. Jesus' only possessions, a plaything for his abusers. Those who put Jesus on the cross get the king's clothes. Those who put Jesus on the cross get the king's clothes. Now, I don't know how it is for you, but in my head growing up, as I would hear the stories of the cross, I, I would think of these really big, tall, high crosses, and everybody would be looking uh, but the reality is Roman crosses are a lot shorter than our imaginations give them credit for. Now, why would that be? Well, remember, these crosses are alongside the highway, right? Remember, these crosses are not just for physical pain. They're for shame. And so they would often be lower so people could see clearly the face of the one dying and then the one dying and who was being shamed could see the face of all those people who were mocking them. See, all the elements of shame, they just come colliding together into the perfect storm. And our author John, he wants us to connect the dots of this shaming of the clothing and the king's cross. He wants us to see how it is Jesus heals our shame. How Jesus reverses the curse from the garden way back in Genesis 3. And we're going to get into that, but first, before we move forward, we need to define terms in order for this to be helpful. So, shame, what, what is shame? Shame is the dreadful sense that something is wrong with who you are. Shame is the dreadful sense that something is wrong with who you are, that we are not as we ought to be, that we are unwanted, 
It is what's called a social emotion. We don't measure up to what others think we should be or what we think we should be. Shame is the opposite of glory. It is the feel that you are fundamentally in your very being and identity. You are a disappointment. You are not someone to delight in. And shame cuts to the very center of the human being. For one of our deepest and most intense longings is to be known. To be known and to be loved. And so you could, you can speak about it this way to help delineate it from guilt. Guilt is what you have done is bad. Guilt says what you have done is bad. Shame says who you are is bad. Who we are is exposed, lacking, and just simply unlovable. Now, shame is not mere embarrassment. Embarrassment is feeling socially foolish based off of some kind of circumstance. Shame is feeling that you are fundamentally flawed in your very essence, where your identity lies. So you could say that shame is the shiver that runs through our souls when we hear the words, I'm leaving. The accuser's voice speaking, something is wrong with you. It's the shiver that shakes you when memories of abuse flood through your physical body and the accusing voice whispers again, something is wrong with you. And it's that shiver of soul that courses through the body when you succumb to yet another fix of your addiction that says, see, something is wrong with you. We've all felt it. We've all felt it, but what many of those who follow Jesus don't realize is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, deals with our shame. And as I said earlier, in the Western world, we primarily focus on, when we think about the cross, we primarily focus on how it deals with our our guilt. It's a guilt and innocence construct. And this is true. This is so true. Jesus covers our guilt with our grace, or with his grace. He is our great substitute. It's true. But we need a more holistic apprehension of the good news, a a multi-dimensional apprehension of the goodness of the cross. Because the cross of Jesus conquers our sin, cleanses our guilt, and covers our shame. The cross does all of these things. The cross conquers the sin that has ravaged us, cleanses the guilt that has hung our head, and and covers our shame that has us averting our eyes. Since power is broken, guilt is removed, and shame is healed. And, And if we don't understand that, there's ramifications. If we don't understand what he has done with our shame, then we go around living dismantled and and diminished, beat down lies. We go around with with our joy ripped out from the core of us. It's it's like there's an anchor tied around our, our neck pulling us down in life. We're tied around our eyes, pulling our eyes down because we don't want people to look into our our eyes and actually see what's inside of our souls. And Satan loves using shame. It's a weapon of choice, hissing to us that we are unlovable, we are unwanted, and that you are unredeemable. So best give up. Don't waste your time with all the 
church stuff are those people who are just pretending to love you. Jesus has covered our shame. He's conquered it. He's absorbed it by bearing it. See, he entered into it, taking the shame, though he was who he should be. He was right and pure and good and true. He bore our shame. And only he could heal it because shame, it runs, it just simply runs too deep in us. It's, it's ancient and we're born with it smoldering in our bones because of what we've done and who we've become. But then there's, there's all this false shame and this toxic shame that is poured on us by culture and families of, of origin and our own broken narrative that's in, in our head because of the, the serpent's voice. It's just everywhere. The shame is just everywhere. And so John, again, in his wisdom, is trying to get us to make some connections, to, to connect some scriptural dots regarding shame and clothing. So we're going to connect a couple of those dots with our remaining time. And the first dot he lays out here explicitly, and it's Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22, this is written some 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. This is written by King David. It is, it is a psalm. It is, it is poetry, a heart that, that's pouring forth its pains and aches because of the persecution that this author is receiving. And John tells us that these gambling soldiers fulfill the prophecy about the Messiah that this poem speaks about. So in John 19, verse 24, at the end there, it says, This, them gambling, this was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments, plural, among them. And for my clothing, singular, they cast lots. Psalm 22, verse 18. The nuance and the detail in this is is, is incredible. Again, I gave it away. The the garments there. This is Hebrew poetic poetry it's parallel but there's detail in here the garments plural they're dividing the four pieces but then the clothing singular they're casting lots over this one piece now that said it's it's also important to note that jesus has been meditating on and praying psalm 22 do you remember that that time on the cross where jesus says my god my god you why have you what is it forsaken me. What's he doing? He's quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is running through his brain and coursing through his heart and and coming out over his lips. He's quoting Psalm 22 while he's suffering and being shamed. And Psalm 22 also says that the sufferer would be mocked or taunted by the crowd and there are the religious leaders and the people before him saying, let the Lord deliver him. He's not going to come. Just let his God deliver him. We'll see if he's really a man of God. Psalm 22 also tells us that the sufferer's bones would be out of joint. His heart would be like wax. This is what happens physiologically on the cross when someone is crucified. Psalm 22 also tells us that there's a company of evildoers that surrounds the sufferer who has his hands and his feet pierced. And then Psalm 22 ends in victory, but it ends in victory through the suffering, that the righteousness of God will prevail, and that God, the the poem ends with, and God has done it, and then Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. He's quoting, he's living, he's breathing Psalm 22. So the points, or points, this vulnerable, suffering Savior that bears intense shame was prophesied 
was seen beforehand. This was the plan all along. God knows our condition. He knows our guilt, our shame, and our fear. And he knows the remedy. He knows the cross is needed. And Jesus is meditating on God's word in his pain. He's like the righteous man in Psalm 1 who's meditating on the word of God day and night. So that's dot one. Dot two. Let's connect this one. Let's go to the genesis of shame. Genesis 2 and 3, the clothing and nakedness in John's passage here takes the reader back to the start of the whole human story. So let me read this. It's worth the rewind. Genesis chapter 2, we'll pick up at verse 25. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Fast forward to chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. After the fruit is eaten, after the sin is done. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? See, the serpent tells them that they're not really loved by God. This God, you can't trust him. You can't trust his love for you. He's holding out on you. So you better get while the getting is good and start grabbing so that you can be like him because you won't be if you don't do it your way. And so they do. And shame arrives when Adam and Eve don't trust God. The rupture comes. They were naked and unashamed because they were in right relationship with God and therefore they were in right relationship with each other. But when they listen to the lie and when they reject God, they hide from each other and then they hide from God. They hide from each other behind the fig leaves. They hide from God behind the trees themselves. They cover themselves because they know something's, something's wrong with who they are. Something's not as it ought to be. So now, naked and ashamed, they feel their displacement. They feel their alienation. They felt the break. The disintegration of the human condition begins. By the way, psychologically speaking, shame at the neurological level disrupts brain function. This kind of toxic shame disrupts the brain function. It acts like a storm that hinders the, the prefrontal cortex from integrating all the other pieces um, of your neurology. So it's kind of like your power goes out. That means your internet goes out and your life is over, right? Power goes out, internet goes out, your devices can't communicate with each other, you don't know what to do, so you freeze. And then you start arguing with your spouse or your kids because you're frustrated. That's, that's kind of what, what happens neurologically. The, the prefrontal cortex just kind of paralyzes uh, because of this paras- uh, anyway, we won't get into it. Um, it, it, neuro- it, it paralyzes, and, and then emotions aren't regulated properly. And then not only is there disintegration, quite literally, within the human being, now there's relational disintegration that works from the inside 
out. Shame disintegrates feeling, thinking, and sensing of the self and dismantles our being. And then in that pain, we begin to turn inward and isolate because the pain is too much. We can't engage with other people. So look at what Adam and Eve do. Fig leaves, right? They cover up with fig leaves. They stitch for themselves the first fruit of the loom underwear, right? That's what they do. They try to hide their shame. They try to bury it. They don't want to be seen in the shame because that is painful, you got to look away from it. And we do this all the time. We try to cover our shame in so many different ways, with dress, with fashion, with success, with distraction, with working really hard, with, with religion. And shame has us hide. That's what shame does. That's shame's main MO is hide, separate, isolate. You know this. When, when you confront somebody about something that, that is, is wrong, Often their physical response when they acknowledge that they're wrong is what? They look away from you. They, they, turn, they turn away. This happens with, with my, my kids often. Um, uh, there was one day where one of my kids did something wrong. And I saw it. And then they look at me and they turn away. And then they run and they run upstairs. And then I go upstairs and I go to their room. The door's closed. And there's a lump on the bed. And I have to peel the blanket back and there's someone looking or not looking at me and I had to reconnect, re-engage the eyes and show that there was love and show that there was care. Shame has us hide from others. It's, it's a relationship disruptor. It's, it's like mold. It's, it has its power in secrecy. It has its power in hiding and it needs to be exposed to the light. So, so shame self-protects by refusing vulnerability or shortcutting vulnerability. But the, the problem is there's no intimacy without healthy vulnerability. So you shortcut relationship. You shortcut intimacy. There's no relational connection without vulnerability. And so shame then leads to isolation because of the pain. And then isolation needs to more shame. And down, down, down the spiral goes. So what's the cure? Well, it's to reverse that spiral. Shame, the cure for shame, begins with healthy vulnerability and loving connection. Adam and Eve hide. They hide in the trees. They cover themselves with fig leaves, but it doesn't work, right? They're still not right with God. They're still not right with each other. And what does God do? How does God address the situation? God makes clothes, right? He makes clothes. What does he make the clothes out of? Animal skins, animal skins. What do animal skin clothes require? Sacrifice. They require animal skins, which requires death. Sacrifice. God provides a sacrifice to cover them. And what the story is, is brilliantly telling us is that there's only one way to heal the shame that is shot through the human condition, and it's by a covering that only God provides, and it's costly. The cure for our shame is the grace of God that that enters into this world. At the cross, we see divine vulnerability. At the cross, we see costly, loving connection. And to try and cure our shame simply by trying harder to be more lovable or more, or more beautiful or, or have greater moral achievement, that whole game, it's like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. The more you do it, the more it's going to burn you up. And we got, we, again, we try all sorts of fig leaves to cover our shame, lying about who we are, 
putting on airs, working harder to prove that we are worth something. Relational patterns of fight or flight. You either fight them or you you fly from them because you can't take somebody getting close to you and seeing your lessness, so you just cut it off at the pass. Or it's numbing out, distracting ourselves with sex and with substances, entertainment, busyness, anything to not remember the spiral of shame within. And then social media, (laughs) it's a shame generator. It's a a shame amplifier. You are not enough. You are not enough. Look at my vacation. How is yours? You are not enough. You you don't look like me. It just generates this sense that you are less. You are less. Our union with our Creator King is the only thing that will remove the soul's shame. Only when we are in right relationship with Him, in loving union with Him, we are not less than we are meant to be. We are with who we are meant to be. We are in Him. And so John is is, is trying to get us to connect, to link these things up. Psalm 22, Genesis 3, John 19, Jesus, the long-awaited hero, Savior, the Messiah, the promised suffering servant. Him, that one, he's come. And at the cross, he's reversing the curse. At the cross, he is reversing the fallout of sin. And remember, shame disintegrates us and our relationships, and it has us turn away from others, turn to self-protect and cave inwards. And so think about what happens next in this John passage. This is incredible. And link it with the garden. In the garden, the man and the woman mistrust God, right? They listen to the lie. Then they hide from each other and they hide from God. They isolate in their shame and their shame game then leads to the what game? The blame game. Thank you, you're here. The shame game, Stu, you're on it. The shame game leads to the blame game. It's too much It's too much, it's too painful, and God comes, and Adam says, it's her fault. Actually, it's kind of your fault, because you gave her to me. He's deflecting it all. He's having to to break these relationships even further apart to avoid his, his own pain. Adam throws Eve under the bus, exposing her to take the gaze off of himself. What a guy. Notice in our text, though, John 19, this is so, Jesus, guys, Jesus, look at this, verses 24 through 27, so the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mom. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Look, in contrast to the four barbaric men who are inflicting the suffering, you have four faithful women who come close to the suffering to be with Jesus in love. And one of these four women is Mary, Jesus' mom. And then there's John, right, the disciple who loves Jesus, who's writing this account. And notice what Jesus does. What does he do? He cares for her. He provides provision for her in her vulnerability. He protects her. He covers her. Jesus is is the moneymaker for that family, or he was before he ended up leaving. So 
He's taking care of mom. He's seeing her in her vulnerability. So get this, at Jesus' tree, he does the opposite of what Adam did at the tree in the garden. Jesus makes himself the vulnerable one. He steps up and he takes the fallout for sin, and rather than abandoning her, the woman, and he calls her the woman, he takes care of her, he covers her, all while he is in the furnace of pain. Guys, I stub my toe when I lose my Christian faith. Like, I stub my toe or hit my funny bone, and I'm suddenly very unlike Jesus to whoever's in the room, mostly my wife or my kids. He is in the deepest furnace of physical pain. He's experiencing shame like, like we will never know. Feel that. In the middle of that, he still has an outward gaze to bless other people. This is our king of glory. This, this is our Jesus. See, Jesus covers the shame of other people, whereas we often shame other people. And when we know this old adage, so help me out, hurt people, hurt people. Well, it's been said that shamed people, shame people. And, and I love this, this line that, that's floating out there. It's this, what is not transformed in us is transfer, transferred to others. What is not transformed in us is transferred to others. As a parent, that hits hard. That hits hard. So how do we deal with the shame in our lives? What are you to do when you are in the midst of pain and shame caving inward in that spiral? A few things, just a, a couple things here. These are what we see Jesus do. The first is this. Embrace vulnerability and receive love. Embrace healthy vulnerability and receive Love, not put, talking about putting yourself in an abusive situation. I'm saying embrace healthy vulnerability by bringing the shame to light so it can't survive, it can't live, it can't have its power over you. Talk about it. Receive care. Hiding is just pretending. It's, it's like a cancer within. It has to be dealt with. And, and there's pain in this, exposing the shame in your life. There's pain in it. It's hard. It's hard, but it's redemptive. So embrace healthy vulnerability and be willing to receive love and help. Second, rehearse the truth of God's word. Rehearse the true, proper narrative of who you are and what God has done. Look to Jesus' love for you. Preach the gospel to yourself. And again, what is Jesus doing on the cross? He is meditating on Psalm 22. He's meditating on Psalm 22 over and over, speaking the truth of Scripture. Speaking the words of the Spirit. He's speaking those as he's processing his own pain and his own shame. And he's praying to his Father. Speak the true narrative. Not the sibilant, snake-like narrative that the accuser speaks over you. And then third, bless others through, through your suffering. Jesus is incredible astronomical levels of physical pain and a storm of shame and he doesn't collapse in on self-pity he looks outward he looks outward he says take care of her take care of her 
He sees the vulnerability and he seeks her good. And I'm not saying we don't get help and focus on our, our challenges and our pains and our traumas. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, is that it is good and healthy to remember what God has done and to, to turn that ministry outward and bless other people, not collapse in, in a heap of self-pity. You know what all that sounds like, by the way, to me? Um, if you sum all those up, it sounds a little bit like Jesus' summation of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Be vulnerable. Confess your need. Trust him. Preach the truth to yourself and love other people. The cross of Jesus conquers sin, cleanses guilt, and covers shame. He covers our soul's nakedness with his righteousness. We are the beloved children of God, lovingly made to bear his image, to rule and to reign over all creation. We are known, we are loved, we are wanted, we are purchased, we are provided for at the greatest cost by a love that did not turn away, but a love that entered the shame, faced it, became vulnerable to reestablish connection, all by a love that trusted in the Father that sought to bless the world. He dresses us in his love and righteousness. And here's the great, glorious, ironic twist of this whole thing. Those who put Jesus on the cross get the clothes of the king. And I'm not talking about the centurions. Those who put Jesus on the cross get the clothes of the king. And that's you. And that's me. We all put him there. Jesus gave his garb away to bless us. And so we are to do the same, to be like Jesus, to not hide from the shame, to face it, to embrace healthy vulnerability, to rehearse God's word, to bless others rather than paying the shame forward. And you remember Billy, right? You can see why shame filled me um, as I thought back on, on what we had done <laughs> To poor Billy. Uh, he was an image bearer. And he was treated like trash. When I was an image bearer, and I wasn't loving an image of God as I was meant to, but Jesus, but Jesus, the king of glory, shamed, treated like garbage, has become the healer of both the shamed and, and the shamer. Jesus conquered my sin. He has cleansed my guilt, and he has covered my shame, and he does the same for you, my friends. It's why Romans 10, 11 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So we can, with great confidence, speak the words of Isaiah from Isaiah 61, 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. Those who put Jesus on the cross get the king's clothes. You are dressed in royal garb because you're king. Father, I want to thank you for your grace. <clears throat> I want to thank you for your mercy. <laughs> I pray that you would take... Um, these many words and do something wonderful and beautiful with them and you would heal the shame that has been hurting my brothers and sisters in this room for years and decades.
We thank you that we can come to this table, we can confess, and we can partake of your grace. We thank you so much. You're good to us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.